Just a quick note before we begin the episode here. This conversation with Bill Fletcher was recorded in early July. It's being published at the end of August because of an illness and treatment that I've been undergoing and difficulty getting to the editing and everything. So my humble apologies to Bill and to all of the listeners and viewers and counterpunchers out there. Hopefully we'll get back on track with the schedule and my health and everything else and we will all be good to go. But with that said, please enjoy my conversation with Bill Fletcher here on Counterpunch Radio. Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners, viewers finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Go over to counterpunch.org, get the Counterpunch Plus subscription. That is how you support our work. That's how you support the publication, how you keep the lights on, keep paying for, you know, all the back chat, all the back end stuff of the, the web hosting and all of the other things that we have to pay for in order to keep Counterpunch coming every single day. It's been 30 years, many more years coming in the future. Counterpunch is really one of the few spaces we have on the left with all of these competing views, all of these competing perspectives on the critical issues that you really want to read about, that you want to learn about. Counterpunch provides that platform. And uh, if you value that sort of thing as I do, as I know many others do, make your subscription, make your donation, whatever you want to do to support Counterpunch. That is greatly appreciated. And of course, support our friends. And we have one of our friends with us today. It's Bill Fletcher Jr. I've been waiting to speak with Bill for quite a while. Bill is an activist. He's an organizer, an author. Um, I want to I give you a couple of the book recommendations. Of course, he has several nonfiction books, Solidarity, Divided, and uh, they're, bankrupt, they're Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions. Also, his fiction books. He's a very, very talented fiction writer. We're going to be talking about some of that today, including his most recent book, The Man Who Changed Colors, and the book just before The Man Who Fell from the Sky. Bill is a veteran labor organizer organizer and activist. He is a wealth of information. Bill, thank you so much for coming and chatting with us today. Eric, I'm, I'm really glad to be here. And thanks so much. This is uh, an honor and pleasure. Oh, well, the pleasure is all ours. And let's begin by asking you a little bit about yourself. Could you introduce yourself a little bit for those who may be not familiar with your work, your background, how you got into labor uh, activism and organizing and all of the work that you do? So, um, I'm originally from New York, 
uh, and grew up in New York and in a suburb of New York called Mount Vernon. And um, I was always interested in uh, events, uh, domestic and foreign, uh, in, including when I was in elementary school. Uh, the trend, the first major transition for me was when I read the autobiography of Malcolm X when I was 13. And that really shook me up and set me on a particular course that I would argue I've been on ever since. I uh, became active in high school in radical student politics, went to Harvard College undergrad, uh, was active there. And while there, um, developed a greater interest in the labor movement. Uh, and the chairman of Afro-American studies, as it was called then, at Harvard was Ewart Ganeer, who had been the secretary treasurer of the United Public Workers, which was one of the unions that was red-baited out of the Congress of Industrial Organizations in the late 40s. And um, Ganeer left the union movement at a certain point and went into academia. When he was, he would teach Afro-American studies with a class point of view and a point of view that emphasized social movements. And that really moved me, that along with what was happening in the radical left at the time. And so I graduated and decided I was gonna get into the working class and get into the labor movement and I went to work as a welder in a shipyard. Um, and that becomes relevant in my second novel. Um, and I was there for about four years. And, and then a variety of different jobs and ended up working for unions and moved to the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, continued my radical activism, helped form something called the Black Radical Congress back in 1998. Um, and uh, trade union activism. So, and, and I, I've gotten involved in domestic and international issues. As you mentioned, uh, I, I was the president of an organization called Trans-Africa Forum, which had been founded by Randall Robinson, the late Randall Robinson, and I was the second president. Um, international affairs were always important to me. And, and this, that was, that was quite a challenge. If we have time, we'll talk about it. It's very interesting because you kind of have this uh, uh, dual background, right? Obviously, highly academic background, but with this sort of rooted experience in the working class. So can you talk a little bit about sort of that need for that working class uh, experience and how that translated into actual organizing work that you did? Well, one of the things, Eric, is that I went to college a leftist, saw myself as a Marxist, even though I barely understood what Marxism was, but I, you know, embraced it um, and was active while I was there. But as I always say, when you go to an Ivy League school, you're going to a place that's training people to rule the world. I mean, that's their purpose. And, and that can have an impact on you, even if you have left politics. You can become quite arrogant. You can think very highly of your ideas, your role. 
And so leaving school and going to work in a shipyard was a dramatic change. It's what I call my second education. Uh, and it was, um, it was very humbling because I was, they didn't know I'd gone to Harvard. Uh, and they, uh, you know, people didn't there. And I was learning from people who may or may not have gone to college, um, various experiences. Uh, it was very much helped one to demythologize the working class, uh, which, you know, you know there's, there's a way in the left where we can really mythologize the, the working class and and you know you, you just see people are people they're very contradictory they can hold very inconsistent views they can be wonderful at one moment and pretty backward another it was a, it was very illuminating and it helped me when i ended up going to work for a, a union or for unions and for the national afl cio etc it helped me to be grounded. Um, many times I would encounter progressive and leftist staff people who didn't have much in a way of work experience, that is work in the working class. And they often had very unrealistic ideas about what workers can and will do. Uh, had no sense of the long term and winning people to a, a different worldview and a different practice. So all of that was very, very important. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the politics of the unions that you were involved in? And I, I asked partially out of um, an interest with my own experience, my own brief experience as a delegate with the, uh, the United Federation of Teachers in New York City, mm -hmm. historically extremely reactionary union with yeah. very checkered racial history and so forth. And I remember in 2009, sitting in, in one of those uh, delegate assemblies and being unable to pass resolutions in solidarity with the people of Honduras who were undergoing a coup at that time, which was backed by Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama at the beginning of Obama's first term. And noticing how unbelievably reactionary the union was, the leadership was, but even a lot of the rank and file. And I know that's not true of all unions. So I'm curious, what was your experience with the unions that you were a member of, involved in, and worked with? Very mixed. Um, my first union was the Industrial Union of Marine and Shipbuilding Workers of America. And it was Local 5. And it uh, no longer existed. It got absorbed into the machinist union. And what's interesting, Eric, is that this is a union that began in the 1930s, was very progressive. Uh, if you read their original, uh, the original preamble to the union's constitution, you would be struck. I mean, it's very, it's, it's very left. Uh, but by the time I got there, in the late 1970s. We're talking about a union that was very conservative, um, very racist at the leadership level, uh, a union that had come to depend more and more on military contracts in order for work to happen. And, and so even though 
while I was there, we were building liquefied natural gas tankers. When that contract ended, the, the union leadership was really searching and helping the company look for uh, military contracts. And this affects the consciousness of people. Um, you, you know, it's, this is where work was coming from. Uh, so what is important to keep in mind is that unions are not panaceas. You were in the union that my mother was in. Uh, she was a, a, a veteran of the UFT. And in the notorious 1968 teacher strike, she crossed the picket lines. And she did because that teacher strike was a reactionary racist strike. And my mother um, had a hell of a lot of courage and had the full support of my father in crossing the picket lines. And she was very pro-union. That's one of the things that's important. She and my father were both very pro-union. And what's interesting, Eric, is that after the strike was over, my mother kept being pro-union. But she vehemently disagreed with Albert Shanker and the leadership of the UFT in their strike against community control and against desegregation, in effect. Um, that was very important in my upbringing, to understand that one could be pro-union, fanatically so, and while at the same time being very realistic about the strengths and weaknesses of existing trade unionism. So when I went into different unions, I wasn't expecting a panacea. I wasn't expecting a utopia. I was expecting what I encountered, which were very contradictory politics, practices, um, sometimes very strong militant rhetoric. You know, in, in 2000, I went to South Africa to the Congress of what was called then the International Confederation of Free Trade Unions, which the AFL-CIO was a part of, and the Congress of the South African Trade Unions was a part of, and they were the hosting uh, federation. And the president of the AFL-CIO at the time was John Sweeney, who was a reformer and had been introducing some important changes. And he gave a speech that was really progressive. Uh, this was, I think, in the spring of 2000, um, and very progressive, and very anti-globalization. Uh -huh. When 9-11 happened, all of a sudden, it was like a switch had been clicked, and the the rhetoric of the union turned in the direction of like Pearl Harbor and the expectation that the union movement had much of the union movement that they could join hands with capital to fight terrorism and fight this attack and not appreciating the difference between 2001 and 1941 and what was at stake and what the corporations, what corporate America was doing in 2001 and what the then George W. Bush uh, uh, administration was doing. 
it was it was weird, man. I mean, they were sort of pleading for a seat at the table in this expression of national unity, and they completely missed the boat. So within 18 months, I saw this wonderful anti-globalization, international solidarity. I mean, when I was at their Congress, at the Congress of the ICFTU, part of what I was doing was going around and talking to left-led federations and opening up a dialogue between them and the AFL-CIO. And uh, in some cases, these were federations that the AFL-CIO in the old days had tried to destroy. So I was involved in helping open up discussions, including with the Palestinians. I met with the Palestinian General uh, Federation of Trade Unions, and they were they wanted to meet with John Sweeney. Well, and by the and and considering what was going on in Palestine in two thousand, that's a mm-hmm. that's a pretty hot issue. I, I'd be I'd be interested to know more about that. It was right before the second intifada, and uh, that this happened, and Sweeney met with them, and it was sort of it wasn't like anything dramatic came out of it, but what it was was opening up a discussion, a dialogue that needed to go down. But, I mean, I say that while at the same time, there remained unevenness. And that's the thing that people have to understand, the nature of contradictions and that there is no purity. Things are always contradictory. And you've got to figure out at any one moment, what's the principal side to that? Now, I guess to finish up this point, one of the interesting things about you and your background is, again, this sort of being rooted in the labor movement, organized labor and labor issues, while also having this very clear sort of um, principled connection to international issues, international solidarity, which again, often is these two things exist separately, right? You're a union guy who focuses on union issues and wages and whatever, right? Working conditions and so forth, or you're an international guy who focuses on international issues, right? And so I'm, I'm curious to what extent these things were, I guess, working in tandem in your work. In other words, were you able to infuse some of the international issues into your union, getting the union to take stands where it might not have? To what extent were you successful and to what extent did you find institutional opposition to a lot of that? Um, hmm. So let me answer it this way. So while I was at the AFL-CIO, I was probably the highest ranking open leftist in the trade union movement. And that brought with it a very complicated situation uh, that included open and more subtle forms of red baiting. Uh, But to the credit of John Sweeney and his chief of staff, Bob Welsh, they didn't, that didn't result in my uh, being suppressed. And what, what accounts for that, you think? Can you speculate what accounts for that? Is it your academic background, your ability to hold your own in a room debating people? Is it personal connections? Maybe all of those things? I think it's a lot of things. I think that it was a reflection of um, the infusion into the movement of a lot of leftists who started to influence change 
at different levels. So while ego-wise, it'd be nice to think, well, it's about me. And there's an element about me and stuff like that, obviously. But it, it was a part of a phenomena, part of a wave that I think had a major impact. Plus, John Sweeney wanted, sincerely wanted to reform the trade union movement. He was not a revolutionary. So you couldn't hold him up to that standard. Um, he was a reformer and he was willing to go up to a certain point. But when he got to that point, it was difficult moving him. Um, my influence at the personal level, I think to some extent it helped in international affairs. Um, I helped to open up discussions with the Venezuelans. Um, when the AFL-CIO had not played a very good role uh, with the Venezuelan um, uh, trade union movement. That was actually after I left the AFL-CIO, but still I was able to do that. Um, the, we did a wonderful economic education program called Common Sense Economics, which was aimed at talking with workers about capitalism. And so we were able to infuse some international issues like about globalization, things like that. Uh, with domestic, we're able to talk a little bit about race and gender. Uh, but one of the things that we were up against mirrors a problem that the actor and activist Danny Glover told me about in terms of Hollywood. I asked him something once about Hollywood, and he said, Bill, you have to keep in mind that Hollywood has never quite gotten over the Red Scare, um, that there are a lot of progressives in Hollywood, but there's also a lot of fear that exists. There's not the level of organization in Hollywood that there once was. And in a lot of ways, you see the same thing in the trade union movement, that the anti-communism, the red baiting, um, had a, a, a catastrophic impact on the trade union movement and made it difficult to even have certain discussions that people, when we started Common Sense Economics, Eric, I mean, it may sound unbelievable, but the fact that we were talking about class, you didn't talk about class or... Um, in, yeah, that's in, commie stuff. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in our education, um, I remember having discussions with the planning committee because there were people that did not want to use the word capitalism. Um, they said, well, you know, we should say, talk about free market economy or something like that. And I'm say, I said to them at a certain point, and I was the head of the education program, so I said, look, if Business Week and Fortune can use the term capitalism, so can we. That's And the discussion ends. And so we talked about capitalism. But that was in 1996 and 97. Think about that. The, the, the red baiting and the purge began around 1948 to 1950. So you're talking about 40 years later. There was still the legacy of that. And it just, it worked its way out. There was a, um, uh, 
excuse me, when I took over, there was a uh, booklet that the AFL-CIO had had for years. I think it was called something like a short history of organized labor, something like that. It was terrible. So one of the things that I decided was as education director, I wanted something new. And so we commissioned the late James Green, a, a great labor historian from University of Massachusetts, Boston, uh, and a person, very close personal friend of mine and mentor, to write a basic short history of organized labor for workers, something that'd be like 100 pages that people could get and give out. So he did it, did a wonderful job. And one day I was at LAX on my way back home and I got paged. Um, that was a time of pagers. And it was President Sweeney's office. So I called, I said, what's up? They said, President Sweeney wants to speak with you. So I got on the phone. Well, it turned out that the president of one of the affiliates had written this incredible anti-communist letter to Sweeney attacking the booklet and attacking James Green. And this was on, on top of a, a more subtle attack we had gotten from someone from another union. But this one basically denounced the whole project, said that we should throw it out and find what this uh, labor leader called a real labor educator to write something. So I was told by Sweeney, Sweeney interrogated me about this, and he then decided, he said, well, I'm going to have our assistant to the president for public affairs look at this. And so they did. And the idea was it was going to be edited. There were going to be editing comments to try to deal with some of the concerns, and then it would be issued. It never came out. Never came out. I would go back to the communications people, where are things standing, and they'd kept saying things like, oh, it's being worked on, there's been some delays. You know, it's now 2023, and this has never seen the light of day. And it got to the point that Jim decided to uh, post it on a website, I think for the Massachusetts AFL-CIO, I can't remember. So that tells you about the unevenness that existed. I want to ask you a little bit about some of the uh, work that you've done recently, because it is still, of course, rooted in all of the work that you've done with uh, organized labor and you know trade unions and stuff. So one of the interesting things, Bill, that you have been involved in in recent years was in helping to organize uh, minor league baseball players. Now, I want to ask you a little bit about how that all happened and your role in all of that. But I think it's important if listeners and viewers have not heard several other episodes that I've done where I have talked about this issue with David Roth and others who have been on this show, then I would ask you, Bill, if you could also just briefly explain for people who don't know just how economically exploited minor league baseball players are, where they fit in terms of 
salaries and how it all works and why it was so important that they begin to organize. And then, of course, your role in all of this. So I grew up in New York, as I said, and I was a real baseball fan until I lost interest at a certain point. And then in the year 2000, largely for political reasons, became re-engaged with baseball. And that was because I was reminded of the contributions of the late, great Kurt Flood, uh, the St. Louis Cardinals uh, player, outfielder, who led a lawsuit against the so-called reserve clause, which was indentured servitude for players. Um, And he helped through that lawsuit trigger a situation where within a few years, even though he lost the lawsuit, uh, the reserve clause was demolished, demolished, and free agency was introduced, which is a whole other story. Um, I so so in August of 2016, there was a tremendous article in the Washington Post about the conditions facing minor league baseball players. Um, we're talking about people that might be making. Uh, $1,200 a month when they played, maybe $5,000 a month at most. Um, They had to frequently buy their own equipment. They were so poor that they were living, they were sharing apartments, uh, or sometimes depending on the generosity of fans, there was a whole network of fans that allowed players to stay rent-free uh, in their homes during during the season, um, food, uh, limited food, um, and often very little money for food, and so they'd have to rely on what they could eat, you know, at the time of a game. Um, and we're talking about conditions that were reminiscent of agricultural workers. It was it was it was amazing. And then if you were an overseas player that came here. You had no guarantee that if you were let go, that you would be provided with the funds to return to your home. And I would just and I would just add also that minor league baseball players almost I would say I don't know ninety eight ninety nine percent will never see the major league, so they will never right. see, they will never see a major league contract. They will never see a major league minimum, let alone the multi million dollar contracts that catch the headlines. So we're talking about the vast majority of a workforce that is basically perpetually in this economic condition that you're describing. Go ahead. Absolutely, it's very important. It's also important for listeners and viewers to know that the I believe the average length of time in the major leagues is five years, and and so the we hear about the exceptional players, the Albert Pujols and others, um, you know, the, the, that, that have, you know, that have been in for, for years. But the average is about five years. And as you said, most people enter in the minor leagues don't make it into the major leagues. There's three levels in the minor leagues, single A, double A, triple A. And triple A is the closest to the major leagues. And it's not uncommon for major league players, if they're not doing well or if they're injured, to be put back into the AAA or AA for a certain period of time. So in August 2016, this article came out in the Washington Post. My wife read it. 
And she then handed the paper to me and said, Bill, these folks need a union. Now, my wife and I just celebrated our 44th anniversary. Um, and we are... Congratulations to you guys. Thank you. We're comrades and everything. And I, she's also my leader. When she says, Bill, these folks need a union, I understand what that means is, Bill, you got some work to do. So there was a guy mentioned in the article named Garrett Brushhouse. He was a former AA pitcher who was now an attorney who was leading a class action based on wage and hour issues against Major League Baseball on behalf of minor league players. So I decided I'm going to reach out to him. I've done stuff like that before. And I uh, tracked him down, sent him an email, did not expect to hear from him. Uh, Within 24 hours, he responded. And we set up a, a phone call, and that was it. I mean, we just started talking, and he I discovered he was very progressive, very pro-union. And, and he, we talked about the need to unionize players. The problem is that the Major League Baseball Players Association never took up the task of trying to organize minor leaguers. And so we approached them. They weren't interested. They said they'd support it in principle, but they weren't going to do anything. We approached some other unions uh, that expressed at least initially some interest, but then nothing happened. And then at the end of 2019, Garrett and I decided that the route to go was an intermediate route, which was to set up a nonprofit advocacy group to lay the foundation for a union. And that's what we formed in early 2020, Advocates for Minor Leaguers. And um, and so we brought in uh, a great crew as the as the board uh, that included uh, one major league player, um, a few, a couple of current uh, minor league players, and a couple of other folks, and we then started looking for money in order to get a staff. And eventually through the generosity of the MLBPA and the Ford Foundation, we were able to get enough money to hire an executive director, Harry Marino. And I always say Harry was like a pit bull. I mean, this guy was amazing. And and he came on and Garrett had to step off as president or chairman of the board because of his legal case that he was leading, and I became the board chair. So uh, Harry and I worked very closely together, and Harry ended up cultivating a relationship with uh, Tony Clark, the executive director of the Major League Baseball Players Association. And, and through a combination of that and through some of the actions that we organized, uh, the uh, advocates for minor leaguers really helped to change the discussion. So players, we started to engage players. We brought on a Spanish-speaking staff person. Uh, we uh, started taking up the issue of housing and uh, started talking to legislators about what was going on. And 
we were able to make a breakthrough on this question of housing, where one team after another, after sufficient pressure, started to say, oh, no, okay, we're going we're gonna to deal with this housing issue. And then we started dealing with the issue of pay. Um, and, and so, one, you know, you see right now I'm wearing a Pittsburgh Pirates cap. And part of that is because of the history of the Pirates and something that happened on September 1st, 1971. And part of it was celebrating um, McCutcheon, this great player of the Pirates, who was returned to the Pirates, who was an outspoken supporter of advocates for minor leaguers. He was one of several, uh, Sean Doolittle, another one, uh, uh, major league players who spoke up on behalf of minor leaguers. And eventually, the Major League Baseball Players Association, under the leadership of Tony Clark, decided they were going to go for it. And they decided, with our help, uh, to organize. And, and that is the way that 5,000 minor league players became members of the Major League Baseball Players Association uh, at the, in September of 2022, and they signed the first contract in early 2023. In fact, Eric, what was phenomenal about this is that Major League Baseball granted voluntary recognition, which I don't think would have happened if Biden had had not been president. I think that if Trump or any other Republican had been president, and I think if some other Democrats had been president, it wouldn't have happened. I think MLB would have tried to fight us, but Biden is very pro-union, and I think, you know, my sense is that he made it pretty clear which way he wanted to see things go. And when uh, MLB formally recognized, uh, agreed to voluntary recognition, um, and recognized the the uh, MLB for repre- uh, MLBPA representing the minor leaguers, he tweeted, congratulations. Um, and so it was a tremendous victory. But let me tell you something funnier, and it relates in a, in a peculiar way to my writing novels. When I told people that I was involved in organizing minor league baseball players, a lot of people looked at me like squinting, like, why are you doing that? I mean, and it was, and, and they, in some cases, they'd come right out and ask, like, why? I mean, there's all these other sectors to organize. Why are you doing that? You know, what do you have, extra time on your hands? And I got a similar reaction when I wrote my novels, that particularly the first one, that there was almost outrage in certain quarters that I dared to write fiction. Um, well, I dared to write fiction and I dared to be involved in organizing minor league baseball players. And I'd say in both cases, it panned out well. Absolutely. And we're going to get to your books, uh, your, your fiction books here in a second. But I want to finish up on this minor league baseball issue because one of the other interesting things about this story, which anybody who follows my work knows, yes, I'm a big baseball fan and I spend many more hours on this podcast talking about baseball than I probably should or most people would like. Um, 
The issue was also that on top of the organizing efforts that you were describing, at the same time, Major League Baseball made what maybe you could call a pretty significant blunder in terms of their hard move to contract a bunch of minor league organizations, to gut many historic uh, minor league towns, to rob them of their historic franchises, et cetera. There was a lot of sort of animus against Major League Baseball just at the moment that this organizing drive was happening. And I, I bring that up to just kind of bring us back to this point that you made earlier about kind of contradictions and sort of some of these, um, you know, serendipitous circumstances as they might like, you wouldn't necessarily have predicted that those things would happen at the same time, but they did. And oh, also COVID and the shutdown of Major League Baseball and a lot of other things. And also the expiration of the collective bargaining agreement and the sort of setting up bargaining positions for the next CBA round and so forth. So can you talk about how a lot of these other circumstances also played a role? Well, by analogy, it's like the notion of critical mass. Uh, an atomic bomb goes off when uranium-238 is a certain amount is fired uh, at each other at a certain rate of speed. And when that connects, it sets off a chain reaction that leads to an explosion. Now, that's important because the individual particles of uranium-238 are not going to blow up. Um, and they'll kill you, radiation poisoning but it won't blow up. It's the notion of critical mass. And that's what happens in social movements. It's about timing and it's about the way certain things come together. So you're absolutely right that the advocates for minor leaguers combined with COVID and the implication for minor leaguers and major leaguers, the the reorganization of minor league baseball uh, the terrible attention in the news that MLB was getting, uh, Biden is president, all of these, it, it became a perfect storm. And, and that's one of the things that organizers have to keep in mind, that you can often do all the right things, but they just don't come together. I, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the memorial for uh, the late Randall Robinson, my predecessor, Trans Africa, and they they showed a video of him being interviewed some years ago, and he basically made this point when he was talking about the anti-apartheid movement in the United States, that he attempted some of the same tactics to protest the regime of Mengistu, Haile, Haile Mengistu in Ethiopia that was very repressive, um, and got no attention. And yet he did this around South Africa, and all of this stuff came together. And and it's it's because of all of these things about who was involved, about how Black America looked at the question of South Africa. I mean, all of these things, about Reagan being the president, and, and these things come, come together in a certain way, and va-voom. Um, so as progressives and leftists, here's the basic lesson. We never know when there will be an explosion, but we know there will be an explosion. But you can never count on it happening at any particular moment. 
but you've always got to be anticipating the possibility of it. No one could have predicted 2020 and the, and the response to George Floyd's murder, murder. No one. There had been murders before. Nothing like that happened. But there was an accumulation of factors. And so the question is always, under the circumstances, are you and your organization prepared to move in sync with the moment? That is, not way ahead of the moment and also not lagging behind. Are you prepared to move in sync with the moment and help to shape the moment? You're not going to cause the moment, but you can help to shape it. So advocates for minor leagues didn't cause this, but we helped to shape it. And had we not been in existence, I don't think that there would have been an organizing of the minor league players. I don't think, I don't think that would have happened at all. I think that there would have been outrage at a number of things. I think that there might have been some reforms. Um, there was an, uh, another organization that was working around the issue of minor leaguers at the same time as us. And they took a very different path, a non-adversarial path. They decided that what they were going to do was to try and find a means of collaborating with Major League Baseball in order to improve the conditions for uh, minor leaguers. Garrett and I and others disagreed with them and said, we hear you, but that's not who MLB is. I mean, we're going to have to take them on. And we were told by them and others, no, you're going to scare the players off. It's not going to work. We succeeded. Absolutely, you did. And um, so you took on, um, I guess, something of a controversial subject and you managed to, uh, you know, make hay out of it. And so I want to ask you, um, in the time that we have remaining before we switch over and talk about your uh, recent book, is another controversial issue that you've taken on recently, one that has brought you and I together at various times and many others as well. And that's the issue of solidarity with Ukraine and the uh, resistance to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is, of course, I probably don't need to explain to people listening or viewing uh, this conversation that this is a controversial subject on the left in the West and in the United States, especially among leftists. Uh, many have been divided over how to view the war in Ukraine, the role of the, the Western left, the U.S. left, and especially vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine, the U.S. position versus Russia's position, etc. Uh, you're one of the founders and one of the uh, influential figures, I guess we could say, in the Ukraine solidarity movement. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about why, why Ukraine, why trying to build this international solidarity movement, why you think it matters on this particular issue. You know, it's, it's funny, Eric. Um, about two weeks ago on Twitter, uh, somebody posted a tweet about me where they said, why are you so obsessed with Ukraine? And I said, obsessed? Question mark. I said, do you mean obsessed the way I am about Western Sahara, Palestine, Venezuela, Cuba? Puerto Rico, Philippines, etc. Right. In other words, um, I come to to Ukraine, the Ukraine issue, quite honestly, as an internationalist, um, and and I'm not saying that to get any praise. That's just who I am. 
and and I um, have always been against international aggression, imperialism. Uh, whether the imperialists are from the United States, whether they're from Russia, whether they're from Portugal, France, whoever. Um, and so to me, and perhaps naively, Eric, it was an obvious question which side to be on. Um, I mean, looking at the Putin regime, the regime that throws people out of buildings, it seems like on at least a monthly basis, uh, imprisons opponents, um, has supported uh, fascist and right-wing populist groups all around the world, including the United States, interfering in elections, etc. cetera. Uh, it was a no-brainer. And as a result, I was a bit stunned, my friend, by some of the responses, including from people that I cared for. Um, and, and I think what it pointed to is a combination of a lack of dialectical thinking in much of the left, that it's very one-dimensional, uh, that, that there can only be one enemy at a time, uh, that, they, you know, that this idea when you people say, well, the U.S. is the main enemy of the world's people, what they really mean is that it's the only enemy. That's what they really mean, um, as opposed to the notion of workers and oppressed peoples of the world unite. That is, to me, the operative slogan. Workers and oppressed peoples of the world unite. So when this invasion happened, it was obvious to me. The, the Russians had violated international law. They violated the Budapest Accords, which a lot of these people, the so-called campist folks, uh, the, those that either openly support the Russians or those that want the Ukrainians to surrender, um, they frequently ignore the Budapest Accords, Eric. I don't know if you've encountered that, but I, I'm often amazed when I raise the Budapest Accords, people start doing like a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers dance to try to avoid addressing it. The reason is because they have canned responses for all of these uh, obvious criticisms, right? Well, it's NATO expansion. Well, it was the promises made at the end of the Cold War, and it was this and it was that, right? And so when you start to point out sort of some of the inconvenient facts, well, you know, there was a treaty. Well, you know that Ukraine agreed to disarm. They dismantled their nuclear program in exchange for, you know, you could could start pointing to all of these things that begin to, I guess you could say, uh, uh, complicate their very simplistic narrative in Rather than being able to counter those things, instead the counter is, well, you are obviously one of those leftists who's secretly an imperialist. You're secretly in league with the CIA. You're secretly working for the Council on Foreign Relations or whatever the hell they might say, right? So in other words, they can't actually engage in any substantive uh, um, debate on the subject. And so instead, that's how they kind of dance around it. And that's generally true. Obviously, some of them are better than others. Some of them are better debaters than others. But for the most part, they can't really root it in what you're talking about, things like, you know, Facts. Absolutely. And and it's it's gotten very, very ugly. Um, uh, I'm not going to mention names, but I've had 
I had one person in particular who described me publicly as the enemy. And, um, and this was someone that I had had a very friendly relationship with for years. We didn't agree on a lot of stuff, but it was friendly. And, uh, but to condemn me as the enemy, as I pointed out to him, I said, you and I are both old enough to remember Cointelpro when the government disrupted organizations, led to the deaths of a lot of people, pitting organizations against one another. And we know the consequences of certain terms, using certain terms. Um, and I was really blown away, man, uh, by that. There's other people like uh, Medea Benjamin and I from Code Pink. Um, we don't agree on Ukraine. I'm very fond of Medea. Um, and uh, we, we simply do not agree on Ukraine at all. Um, except she she opposes the invasion, uh, but but does not support Ukrainian resistance. And I just recognize we have these differences, and we're going to have them. And there's there's really no point in discussing them. And frankly, Eric, I think that after the recent coup attempt, and um, I can never pronounce his name, Brigosian, the uh, yep. coup leader. After his statement about Putin's objectives in the invasion, my attitude is there is no debate anymore. I mean, there's, there's really nothing more that needs to be said. This guy let the cat out of the bag in a way that nobody else could ever have done. And he basically vindicated everything that you and I and other people have been saying, even if the guy is himself a fascist. And so... I've just realized, man, there's, there's no point in debating some of these folks, but there is a point in trying to help the left understand the significance of the national question, national sovereignty, and opposition to authoritarianism, uh, that we cannot be a movement that makes excuses for authoritarianism. The, the left suffered... Uh, immense damage, or large sections of the left, by its uncritical support of Stalin. Um, the segment of the left that I came out of, you know, for all too long, uh, apologized for the Khmer Rouge, uh, making all kinds of excuses. Um, you know, it's like at a certain point, you have to learn the lesson that we need to have a left that is anti-imperialist and anti-authoritarian that is emancipatory and is not justifying authoritarian regimes. I also think I also think one of the important one of the important things that Ukraine highlights and I've made this point many many times before is that we have also a historic tradition to uphold and this question is central in Ukraine and that is of course what Lenin described as the right of nations to self-determination. This was a central question at the very founding well at the end of World War 1 and the very founding of the Soviet Union, the height of the Bolshevik Revolution, the question of the the quote-unquote prison house of nations and the right of the peoples within the prison house of nations to their right to self-determination in Ukraine. Right. And the question of Ukraine comes directly out of that. And that is why when Putin launched the war, he made the, the references directly to that historical epoch describing 
Ukraine as basically the Bolshevik mistake, Lenin's mistake, right? The time bomb planted under Russia and so forth. It is not only outright imperial revanchism, but it is also a repudiation and a direct attack on the entire legacy of the entire organized left of the last hundred years, really. So those who find themselves on the same side as uh, Putin in terms of making the arguments in favor of Russia's war in Ukraine find themselves as actually virulently anti-communist. Imagine that. Right. Well, they they are supporting great Russian chauvinism. It's what Lenin called it. Um, and, and he talked about the need to attack national privilege. Um, and, and look, the history of the Soviet Union, when it came to the national question, was very uneven. And particularly once Stalin took over, uh, it, it, by, by 1939, 1940, was traveling a very bad path. But the premise of the Soviet Union, when it came to the national question, as you said, was something far in advance of anything else around the world. And yeah, these leftists that are ignoring this, it, you know, I, um, I think that what it points to, one of the things that it points to is a schism within the global left that I do not think can necessarily be breached. I mean, um, uh, bridged. I think that there can be, there will be tactical unity, for sure, on a number of things and issues. But the differences we have on Ukraine are not minor differences. They really do go to some very deep ideas about national question, self determination, and authoritarianism, and. Uh, it has left me very untrusting of many people that I had once thought of as comrades. One of the other things about Ukraine that is important for those of us engaged in these kind of conversations, especially with your background in, in labor organizing, is that Ukraine and, def- and international solidarity uh, with the Ukrainian resistance does not necessarily uh, paper over all of the obvious contradictions within Ukrainian society, within the Ukrainian state, and within Zelensky's own government. And so I want to ask you about this issue of contradictions and the need to support Ukraine in its resistance against Russia, but also the need to support Ukrainian workers in their resistance against their own very uh, economically repressive state. As we know, there have been all kinds of labor, quote unquote, reforms that have been carried out. Many of our uh, Ukrainian comrades and activists have been out on the streets in opposition to a lot of these uh, so-called structural reforms, neoliberal reforms, and so forth. So even within the Ukraine issue, and even within our own sort of solidarity work, there is this other question of how do we understand some of the contradictions within Ukrainian society? Well, part of it to me is easy. Um, when a country is facing aggression, you support that country against aggression. So in 1935, when Italy invaded Ethiopia, Ethiopia was run by an authoritarian emperor, Selassie. It was a sort of feudal monarchy, very repressive. 
Now, the argument, the, 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 the debate at the time was not about whether you could support Ethiopia or not because of a feudal monarch. It was about supporting Ethiopia against Italian aggression. It was that. It was very simple. Um, the uh, in 1936, when the civil war broke out in Spain as a result of the fascist uprising, um, leftists around the world were calling on colonial powers, France, Britain, and the United States, to provide weaponry to the Spanish government to defeat the fascists. Um, that is two things there. One, we were calling on colonial powers that were not good people. We're not talking about calling on the Soviet Union uh, to, to support the Spanish government. But the second thing was the Spanish government was itself contradictory, as was pointed out um, at the time by some uh, African uh, communists and other leftists. The Spanish government could have sent a very different signal had it renounced colonialism in Africa, and it didn't. And that was a major fault. But should that have meant that we withheld support from the Spanish government in the fight against fascism? No. Um, the, in the case of Ukraine, it's obvious you support their fight against the Russian aggression, but um, yes, excuse me, as leftists, we support Ukrainian leftists, progressive people, social movements in their struggles. But those are Ukrainian struggles. They're not struggles that we in the United States get to dictate. We don't get to dictate and should not try, but it's very American, to tell the Ukrainians the terms under which they should settle the war with Russia. We don't get to tell them the terms under which they carry out reconstruction. We get the chance, however, to support progressive forces there in carrying out the various battles that they're carrying out. That's our job. That's workers and oppressed peoples of the world unite. But Bill, the, the counter argument to that is that the war in Ukraine is not really only about Ukraine, nor is it limited to Ukraine and the threats and the risks and all of these other things are so much larger than Ukraine. And so, you know, far be it for me to underplay the, uh, you know, the, the um, plight of the Ukrainian people, but oh, this war is so much bigger than Ukraine. In other words, I mean, another way of saying that is that Ukraine and Ukrainian people should kind of I, I don't know, you know, sublimate their needs, you know, to to fight off the oppressors in favor of or the invaders in favor of, I guess, the greater good uh, people's, yeah. I don't know, feelings That's of safety and comfort, et cetera. I don't know. I mean, the fear of nuclear Armageddon. Right. So every time I hear that, um, I think about the Korean War to begin with. Um, when uh, the when U.S. troops or so-called United Nations troops, it was basically U.S. troops, um, had largely defeated the North Koreans in 1950 and pushed to just south of the Yalu River, which was um, the border with China. The Chinese warned the United States, don't come any closer um, or we're going to attack. General Douglas MacArthur, who was looking for an opportunity for war with China, 
kept pushing, and the Chinese sent a million troops across the border and crushed the U.S. forces, forcing them out. At that point, MacArthur wanted to use nuclear weapons. Now, I, right? I mean, but who was to blame? Was it the Chinese for defending themselves, or was it the United States for threatening to use nuclear weapons? In Indochina, in 1954, the French wanted the U.S. to use atomic bombs against the Viet Minh, who were fighting against them, um, and uh, to use B-29s to bomb Viet Minh positions outside of Dien Bien Phu. I'm saying all this to say that ever since 1945, we've been living with the threat that some idiot is going to use a nuclear weapon but it's being always used as blackmail against struggles of the oppressed. During the Vietnam War, uh, the threat of nuclear weapons was there, and the Chinese and the Soviet Union were providing up-to-date military equipment to the Vietnamese to fight the United States. That could certainly have provoked a nuclear war. We all know that. Was it wrong? Should the, should the Chinese and the Soviets have said, well, Vietnamese, we're just going to take a pass on this one, and you're kind of on your own. I mean, who who would have gone for that? And and I've posed this question even to some friends of mine who give me these very strange answers uh, about, well, we supported Vietnam because they were representing a progressive movement. The Ukrainians are not. No, 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 no. The real reason for supporting Vietnam was because of U.S. aggression. That was the reason. And we were going to support anyone that was going to help the Vietnamese <clears throat> oppose U.S. aggression. You didn't have to support the Vietnamese government. You didn't have to agree with them. But you did have to oppose U.S. aggression and say that the world's governments and people should support the Vietnamese. And that's the way I think we have to look at the issue of, uh, of, of Ukraine. The, the, those that say that it's a proxy war, well, you know, it's interesting. It's a, it's a very bourgeois concept because during the Vietnam War, that's exactly what the U.S. political establishment was saying. Exactly. They were saying the Vietnam War was a proxy war between the United States and the Soviet Union or the United States and China. And it essentially eliminated both the U.S. role, but also the Vietnamese fight. And that's really what's going on. I read something in this the other day. Oh my God, I was just I, I was I was just livid with these leftists calling this invasion the special military operation and talking about the proxy war. Um and, and it completely discounts the facts on the ground of what's going on to the Ukrainian people and that they're carrying on this fight for national survival. Uh, so it's the part of the danger here, Eric, is that there truly is a ominous current on the left, a red-brown alliance current that has people who are ostensibly leftists siding with fascists and crypto-fascists in their opposition to the Ukrainians, and a number of other stands that they're taking. 
it also is something I started seeing in 2016 when you had, I remember one left publication where a writer described Donald Trump as a closet peace candidate um, because he was an isolationist. And it's this complete misreading of isolationism and a misreading of the right, uh, the political right. And I, I think this is going to be, and I've even, I've lost a very good friend to this. I mean, who's really gone down a rabbit hole around this. You know, he was re really into, um, uh, what's her name from Hawaii, um, who ran for president. Tulsi. Right, Tulsi. Um, and and it, it, you can see this happening, this sort of justification for supporting Russian aggression because it's anti-U.S. Oh, Bill, I've been talking about, I've been on this beat for years now. Now we're really getting into it. Yes, of course, absolutely. All of, all of what you say is true. And in fact, much of that, um, much of that can be chalked up to a number of different factors, including sort of the infiltration of the left by what we would used to used to call sort of the conspiracy ecosystem, the conspiracy yes. theory world online, how that blends into and overlaps with what we would think of as traditionally the left. Included with that is things like the alternative wellness community from yoga, whatever, to anti-vax ideas and all of these other things that circulate. COVID helped to bring that really mainstream that even further as that overlaps with conspiracy thinking on the right in the form of things like QAnon, but on the left in the form of the kind of politics that you're talking about, where leftists find themselves sort of in league with or standing with fascists and yet turning around and saying that those who identify it as such are the real fascists, right? So there's this bizarre sort of ups t twisting of reality, turning it upside down and, you know, kind of making this sort of red-brown thing that we used to talk about in a more theoretical context, a much more real, down-to-earth, on-the-ground phenomenon, which is bizarre and strange. But we're going to run out of time, and I do want to talk about your new book. Um, the book is uh, The Man Who Changed Colors. Really, really, really excited to talk with you about this book. But I also want to know, Bill, how did you get into writing fiction? You already mentioned it a little bit, but why did you jump into this? Because, and, and I mean, embedded in this question, Bill, and this is what I really want to get at is how did you fuse your politics and your history and your ideological perspectives uh, and framework into the fiction that you've written? Because these books are fiction, mystery, et cetera, but they're deeply political books. Right, so, so talk about that. Well, part of it is that going back to when I was a kid, I'd come up with stories I think about stories, um, and I was always interested in writing a story. When I was in middle school, I took a crack at writing a short story, but I never returned to it because I became very politically active and found myself always engaged in the realm of nonfiction. But I had this itch that I couldn't scratch. Um, this creative itch, I, and I wanted to write a story. Um, and, and I started in 2008 with a certain manuscript. It didn't work. And then a few years later, I returned with a new idea, which was what eventually became The Man Who Fell From The Sky. And that was very well received, and I was encouraged to write a sequel, and that became The Man Who Changed Colors. 
Um, my, my interest in fiction is both telling stories, but also reaching audiences with a political message who might not read nonfiction. And, um, and I have found often through my speaking engagements where I'll make references to movies, television shows, books sometimes, and people will come up to me afterwards and say things like, you know, I never thought about that until you said the thing about Star Trek. Or, wow, you know, yeah, I, I can see how this all plays out and I see what you're talking about. Um, and yeah, I like Easy Rollins uh, and, and uh, this character from Walter Mosley. Um, a great crime uh, writing, uh, uh, crime story writer. So I decided to do it. Now, The Man Who Fell From The Sky was triggered by a story I'd read about years ago, decades ago, about something that happened in World War II. But I decided I wanted to talk about race, justice, revenge, and I wanted to situate it among Cape Verdean Americans, the first post-1492 African population to come to the United States voluntarily. And they started coming from the Cape Verde archipelago, 500 miles off the coast of West Africa uh, in the 19th century. They came voluntarily as fishermen and whalers, then bring their families over, settling first in New England and then spreading out. And they had a very different experience from the people of African descent that they encountered when they landed here, um, because the, they encountered people who were largely the descendants of slaves, and the Cape Verdeans were not. The Cape Verdeans spoke Portuguese or Criollo. They were Catholic. Um, the, the people of African descent that they encountered here were mainly Protestants, English-speaking. Um, and it was, it was a complicated relationship. But to talk about race using a population that had a different experience, very much influenced by Portuguese white supremacy, I thought helps to bring out some interesting issues about racism. And that it's not a binary and it's not, it cannot be based simply on the experience of African-Americans, U.S. African-Americans who were the descendants of slaves and white Americans. It's much more complex. And, you know, Cape Verdeans, Puerto Ricans, Chicanos, Asians of different stripes, whether you were here, your, descend, your descendants of people here were before 1965 or after, etc. So I decided to use the novel form to get into that. And some you know, people would ask me, Bill, if you're interested in Cape Verdeans, why didn't you write a book about Cape Verdeans? I said, because people wouldn't read it. I'm not an expert. And a lot of people wouldn't read a nonfiction book, but they would read a murder mystery. So these two books are murder mysteries, and The uh, Man Who Changed Colors is a sequel, but I wrote it in a way so that you don't have to read the first book. Um, which, you know, someone might say, well, that's silly. You want, you want people to read the first book. Well, of course I do. But I'm one of those people, and you call me a sucker, right? I'm one of those people, I go into a bookstore, and I get really angry 
when I find these books where it's like, this is book two in a three-part series. And if you haven't read the first part, you're not going to understand what happened in the second part. I wanted to write a book that someone could pick up and they wouldn't have had to have read the first one. It would help them, but it won't hurt them that they didn't read it. And maybe after reading the sequel, they'll decide to go back because you can do that. It won't hurt you in going back. And I had a lot of fun. And the response to this, the response to both books has been great. But the response to the second book has really blown me away. Uh, I mean, the, I mean, people that I know that would not give me a false compliment who are just saying, this book is really wonderful. Um, but here's the problem, Eric. Problem is getting reviews, including in the left. So, you know, publications like Jacobin, in 2018, they said, we don't review fiction. Uh, this year, they just said they weren't going to review the book. And I found out later that they do now review fiction, but for whatever reason, they weren't going to review my book. Uh, in these times, back in 2018, said, we don't review fiction. And I tried arguing the case with both. I said, look, look at the history of the left and fiction. Think of Dashiell Hammett. Think of Octavia Butler. Think about Walter Mosley. Think about Kim Stanley Robinson. We have this tremendous uh, lineage of leftist fiction writers. How can you say you're not going to review it? And in both cases, they wouldn't be you know, uh, of these left publications I mentioned, they wouldn't respond. I mean, they wouldn't respond. And so there's a fight. I mean, the mainstream media, um, there's another fight, which my publisher, I have a small publisher, Hardball Press, um, flagged for me. There's apparently a form of like payola that exists um, in in the review world, which is which is to say that if you are with a publisher that doesn't buy ads in these different outlets, you're less likely to get a review. So that means if you're from a small publisher or if you self-publish, it's going to be really hard unless a particular outlet decides that you're a darling. You know, that you escaped from a Rwandan refugee camp, walked across Africa, swam to the Cape Verde Islands, got onto a plane in the landing gear, land, you know what I mean? One of these stories. And then they'll say, oh, wow, this is, and they'll, they'll, and they'll pay attention to it. But other than that, man, it is, it's a struggle, which is why doing programs like yours is really important uh, because otherwise it's like, does a tree make a sound if there's no one around and it falls? Well, hopefully uh, viewers and listeners are going to go get their copies of The Man Who Changed Colors by Bill Fletcher. I would highly, highly recommend that you do that. And uh, of course, there'll be 
maybe watching this on YouTube or listening to this wherever they're getting their podcasts. And, you know, maybe we can also try to uh, do a review and counterpunch and uh, text form so that it can live in, you know, not everybody sits through an hour long video or an hour long podcast. So yeah, absolutely. Again, I highly recommend people go out and get them, get their copies of the man who changed colors, Bill Fletcher's brand new book, the man who fell from the sky, the previous book. And of course the books that we mentioned earlier, solidarity divided and uh, they're bankrupting us and 20 other myths about unions. Those are the nonfiction books that Bill has written. Bill Fletcher Jr., thank you so much for coming and chatting with us today. Bill Fletcher Jr., somebody you should be following on social media. Follow him on you know, Twitter and wherever else you're following people. Bill, thank you for coming to Counterpunch and chatting with us tonight. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, very much for the time and the questions. I love it. Thanks so much, Bill. Listeners, viewers, thank you. As always, counterpunch.org is the website. Go over, get your subscriptions. We will chat again next time.